Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I have Ali Green on the podcast. She is the co-author of a newly released book called Remote Works. Ali is a remote and digital nomad veteran. She has been working across the globe for various companies since about 2014. She has worked for some of the biggest names in the remote work scene, uh, and she's generally an all-round expert on the topic now. She saw a big opportunity when this thing called COVID came around and set about writing a book on the ways of remote working and organizing companies around this concept. So two years later, uh, the book has now been released. So congratulations to Ali. It is called Remote Works, and I encourage you to check it out. As always, enjoy the podcast. If you're on any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish Inside Outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Ali Green, welcome to the show. What motivated you to write a book on remote work? Thanks so much for having me. So I'm sure everybody is trying to forget, but a couple of years ago, a big thing happened worldwide. And a lot of people were forced into a situation where they were working from home for the first time. For me, I had been working remotely since 2014, and it was definitely a life-changing experience for me professionally and personally. And so when I saw all the chaos in the media and texts from friends, how they were struggling to adapt to this new way of working, I had a really big fear that if we did not get this experiment right, that people would not be allowed to have the same amazing opportunities that me and my co-author Tam had in remote work. We met in 2017 in Cape Town while traveling and working remotely. And during the early days of the pandemic, we're catching up on text messages about, can you believe this company is making people sit in front of Zoom? 
from nine to five all day long. This is not what the future of work is all about. And so we knew at that point in time, we wanted to help educate the future managers, team members, knowledge workers about how they could work better in order to live differently. COVID, you know, as you insinuated, was a little bit of a renaissance almost, wasn't it? It, it seemed to move civilization, um, you know, ahead five or 10 years in a very short period of time. And did you see, you know, obviously it was an inflection point for your career. You had been working remotely for some time prior to that. But I suppose all of a sudden what you were doing, which was a little bit kind of uh, on the fringe, became in vogue. And then suddenly you were... Um, an expert on a topic that everyone wanted to know about. So did, did you did you know that you would be a front runner to all of this? And, you know, was it sort of in your agenda to sort of champion the industry in this way? And then when COVID came along, you jumped on it? Or, or did all of this happen relatively organically? No, it was a very organic process for me. So I remember I started working in 2014. I started to identify with being a digital nomad, which is a whole separate layer of being allowed to work remotely, where I was traveling to a new country every month or so while working a full-time job and sitting on the leadership team of a startup. And so there's all these different layers to my career where I always felt a bit on the fringe because I would meet digital nomads and a lot of them were freelancers. I would meet with other tech startups and see who was their head of people operations. And it was usually someone who had a deep-rooted community in one location and they were going into an office and they were communicating with the leadership team and the company in that way. And I didn't fit into any of those boxes, but I knew that there was something there about this lifestyle. And I always felt like I was trying to justify that you could travel the world and have a serious career, that you could work remotely and be really motivated and dedicated to your work and also enjoy traveling and the benefits of travel and it felt like nobody wanted to take me seriously or, or nobody wanted to believe that the future of work could be totally untethered from a physical location. And when COVID hit, it was a, a very unique time in my life because I had just decided to move on from my role as head of people operations. And my master plan was not to um, fulfill the, the future agenda of remote work. I actually had wanted to take some personal time off. I had booked a, a ski resort trip to learn how to ski. I hadn't done that since I was a child. And the day that I showed up, um, the country shut down and the conversation of remote work just skyrocketed. And I felt, well, I just left my job. I now am not allowed to leave this studio apartment that I'm going to be in except for one hour walk a day, I might as well use my passion and knowledge to help some people. So I personally don't get bored or, or you know, stir crazy sitting around and, and waiting to see how things unfold. So it, it wasn't as intentional as I wish it could have been, because um, that would have been a really nice story. But I think the story of spontaneity and wanting to just help people do better at this because years later, I still see a lot of problems with how people are working remotely was the goal for me. You mentioned digital nomading and I, I was backpacking long time ago now, just in about 2001 when I was in, when I was about 20 and 
Um, there were some people that were trying to work on the road back then, and it wasn't feasible. You know, people didn't really generally have laptops. People were trying to work from internet cafes. And then I did a little bit of digital nomadism again around 2016. And of course, things had progressed. There were communities. A lot of people were kind of working on the road. But it never sort of struck me that these sort of digital nomads were really kind of super committed to a career it was kind of they would do a little bit of work on the side you know and mostly it was for sort of life and lifestyle and travel and adventure and you know you work to pay the bills um you know and then the whole remote work revolution comes along and it seems that moving from the kind of fringe community to everyone um wants to leave the office, wants to work remotely, wants to sort of be be free. Um, do, do you think that the, the world is quite ready for such a dramatic inflection in terms of how people sort of work and organize themselves? No, I think there's still a lot of improvement that needs to be made in all sectors. I think governments need to figure out and determine their strategy for welcoming foreign workers for short periods of time and looking at the benefits it can bring them from an economic standpoint, especially outside of tourist seasons. Um, You see really great examples of communities popping up that are fighting for knowledge workers to come and spend prolonged periods of time there because it's benefiting not just their their macro economy, but their local community economy as well. New businesses such as cafes opening up to support these workers and a really cross-pollination of of key learnings between um, knowledge workers and hospitality workers and, and things of that nature. I think the top example that you see is the Madeira Islands. There's someone named Gonzo Hall who's doing an incredible job working with the local government there to build out programming and support for both the local community and nomads. So I would say governments still have a lot of way to go. We see in the media things like digital nomad visas, but they can be messy and complicated and not really make a lot of sense, not really being as mutually beneficial as they could be. I think a lot of companies are also still very scared about compliance and taxes and and legal issues. Um, But I would remind those companies that they're not an island and they do not have to figure this out alone. There's plenty of companies and consultants that they can outsource these worries to, um, such as global EOR companies or tax consultants abroad that can really help them understand and how to drive their internal policies and their strategy to allow their employees and the people that they work with to have more location flexibility. So if it's not jumping into being a full-time digital nomad, what does it look like that if someone wants to go visit their, I'm going to use a very US-centric example right now, but what if someone wants to go visit their family for Thanksgiving and then the Christmas and New Year holiday is only three and a half weeks later, instead of having to travel back and forth to two different states sometimes and pay for those flights and not be able to spend quality time with their family, what if they just work remotely in a different state for three weeks? Does that, you know, for some states that might trigger a tax issue from some states, it shouldn't. But how how can companies allow that? Because spending more time with your family being 
back in your hometown, you might notice things, nostalgia from your childhood that inspires creativity in a different way than if you're commuting back and forth to the same office. And so I strongly believe that even if you're a digital nomad close to home, if you have opportunities where you can just take a week or two tacked onto vacation or a day where you're working in a neighborhood that's totally different from your normal routine, that you build strengths that are beneficial for a company, such as problem solving, uh, innovation and creativity, getting outside of your comfort zone. And there's a lot of business benefits to have people flex their, their mind muscles like that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. As I heard in the US when everyone went remote and of course, you know, all the, the tech giants were being examined for all of their staff going remote and leaving the expense of San Francisco and things like that. Um, but apparently if employees cross the state lines, then it, it can breach the um, terms of employment and also the taxation system. And apparently the employer themselves can be liable for sort of, I don't know, tax uh, wrongdoing. And so it gets really, really complicated, doesn't it? Um, for these companies that, of course, want to do well, but it's like, you know, especially if you've got 100,000 employees, it's like herding cats, isn't it? Um, and it becomes really, really complicated. And that's only if you're just moving within the US. I assume it just gets more complicated if you fly to another country. Um you know, it's uh, it's kind of a hornet's nest of HR organizational sort of um, oversight. Yeah, and I definitely think this is an opportunity for HR to seek help from people that are knowledgeable and specialized in this subject because things are constantly changing. This is such a hot topic at the moment that even something that was true back in 2021 may no longer be true today. And so it's important that you build out external resources of people you trust to help you stay up to date on the most current events. And two, going back to applying pressure on governments, the way we see change in the world is noticing that rules are outdated and they no longer make sense for how we live our life. And so I think as we see more people become remote workers and and want to really tap into the full benefits of freedom and flexibility, then it will apply pressure on society and how we do things. We're seeing that right now to change gears a little bit. Um, Also with commercial real estate industries and then how offices are being used and what is the makeup of a a tight-knit community. We see that right now with pressure being applied when companies talk about burnout and mental health and helping remote workers deal with isolation and loneliness. But that can happen if you're commuting to an office every day and you don't feel a personal connection with your coworkers. So it's not a it's not a work problem, it's a society problem. And I think all of these things are so intertwined that it's hard to look at any one of them in a Petri dish. And we're just going to keep seeing the world evolve and the future of work evolve. When I was traveling a lot, I noticed the people that did travel a lot, they were actually fundamentally quite lonely people. They were quite isolated because everyone was on their, their own personal path. Um, and metaphorically, but also like actually just, just sort of crossing a country their own way. And, I, it, it introduced a lot of loneliness. And do you did you see that in your sort of digital nomadism? And do you feel that remote work could lead to this, as you say, the sort of disentanglement of society? 
both have been true for me. So I've been, as I mentioned, working in this style for a long period of time. I've also had many personal and professional iterations of what my life has looked like as a remote worker. So I've been a full-time employee working remotely and traveling. I have been an author um, while I've been managing my own um business as an entrepreneur. I've been a freelancer in the past and doing short projects for certain companies um, all while traveling. And I have traveled um, while I was many years younger than I am now um, as a single woman navigating safety in different countries and, and trying to figure out how to make friends and feel not lonely in places. I now have a, a committed partner and a family that I'm traveling with sometimes and also now traveling a lot slower and more intentionally because of my relationship. And what I've learned in all of those things is there have definitely been times where I was extremely lonely, um, especially in the early days of traveling where I didn't know how to find other remote workers and my friends didn't understand that I wasn't just on vacation. And there's also been times where in my early 20s, I tried to move back to a specific city in the United States and do the thing that you're supposed to do and, and have the stable job in the stable city. And I felt just as lonely in those cities because I wasn't building community. And the lesson that I learned is it's not a location where community exists, it's finding shared values. And so what's awesome right now about remote working communities, digital nomad communities, is there are very intentional spaces like co-living spaces. So not just places where you go and work, but also with shared apartments where you can do learning and development programs with people. You can spend social time with people that are other business owners, freelancers, full-time employees working remotely, and, and they help you stay accountable for the work. And they also become your friends while traveling. That's how I met my co-author, Tam. Um, I mentioned on a trip to, to Cape Town. And I think also people are learning how to be more vulnerable and empathetic with the computer screen. So if COVID did a few good things in the world, I think it, it taught people that it's okay to be authentic. And within the remote work community, it's amazing to see other experts and advocates become such close friends of mine and we share ideas with each other. We have interesting debates about the future of work. We congratulate each other on, on next steps in our life. And these are people I have never met in person once. Um, and to me, that just goes to show that it's not about who you spend physical time with. It's who you're spending your emotional and mental time with. Ali, it appears to me generally the nomad community, often they're working as contractors and they don't have full-time employment they don't necessarily have the benefits or the same rights as employees and then also there's murky areas in terms of taxation uh, and then also um, sort of credit scoring is is not as simple i understand that a lot of what well, there's this products coming into that space now to try and fill those gaps in terms of making taxation easier and um getting people loans if they want them. Um, how do you see that aspect of things? And also in terms of employment, do you think that nomadism is generally going to be the reserve of contractors or do you think that you can see sort of a full-time employment with benefits uh, while traveling? 
Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So I'm by no means a, a tax or compliance expert myself, and this is where I rely on people I work closely with um, for advice. But I will say that there's really interesting studies about how this is all going to play out. Um, so Upwork recently um, did a study that said 17% of U.S. workers are now seeking multiple sources of income. Um, and, and it's a low number right now, but I think when you go back to the traditional stereotype of an American dream, you find the one job, you stay there for 20 years, you get the house. This is just a, a data point that's continuing to show that even if someone has a full-time job, the gig economy and those side hustles are becoming more and more prominent, especially in the younger generation. And so what I think we'll see as remote work increases, digital nomad will also increase following that trend, and it'll increase in both type of workers. So I think the the types of people that are freelancers um, that enjoy contract work will lean into resources that help them navigate some of the admin tasks where they used to not have support around things like health benefits and, and figuring out how to do their taxes. But I think a lot of people are leaning into that lifestyle of, of the freelance lifestyle because it's still gives them a lot of autonomy over the direction of their career and they get to work on the projects that are interesting to them if they're knowledge workers in that way um and that they get to beta test if it's a good fit between them and a company and i think on the company standpoint we will see companies starting to invest in things like having a digital nomad policy or a work from anywhere policy internally but I think that it'll be slower to grow. So I think we will start seeing more full-time employees travel, but it'll be for a limited scope. Someone who is going uh, similar to Airbnb's policy, and I, I'm not going to quote this exactly right, where they have 90 days a year that they're allowed to travel wherever they want as long as it fits in the compliance of the destination they're going to, but they can't be on the road for three years consistently at a time. So I think we're going to see bites and pieces of full-time employees going and doing that. And I think a definite increase in the freelancer community of people that want to continue to live this lifestyle and have more access now than ever before to global projects. So tell us about the project itself of writing the book you were inspired was it was it literally when COVID came along you thought oh my gosh I've got to write a book about this and you know tell us a little bit about that journey because it's it's no mean feat to 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 write a book and really complete that process yeah yeah, so it, it literally was that um, I recently went back and looked at my text messages with my good friend Ham and we were having these messages in between just our friendly catch-ups of can you believe this is all happening oh I just had a friend whose IT department sent them home with a laptop but no other rules around how they're gonna communicate and they have all these meetings and we were just sharing what we were observing from our corners of the world and and the book stemmed from a dream that we both had um that we were like we have to do this this is going to be very meaningful and we it was a project that took over two years to complete and the process was really interesting for us because we were writing it from two different time zones while we were friends and we led projects together um like 
personal retreats. We had never worked with each other. And so we're coming from two of the best all remote companies. Um, Tam was working at Automatic when I first met her. I was working at DuckDuckGo. And we had a very specific way of approaching remote work, both in terms of how we were going to project manage the book together and the content of the book itself. And, and so for a while, it was just figuring out, and this is a, a big part of the book, self-awareness. What are our working styles? How do they complement each other? And where are there areas of tension where we need to create very explicit expectations with one another so that we can move forward on the shared goal of completing the book? And when we first started, we didn't have an agent or a publisher, but we really wanted to get the community involved of the people that we looked up to and respected. So we also were conducting a lot of interviews with people that had worked at all remote companies. And so we had all these moving pieces. And while it was one of the most creative projects I ever worked on, it really did amplify all of the lessons I had learned and put into the book around how to communicate remotely um, with a group of stakeholders, keeping the people we interviewed um, in the loop of the progress of the book, um, working with Tam on how we were going to go from brainstorm to outline to writing to editing um, certain chapters. And it was just a really great final sort of momentum of everything we had learned up until that point put into practice. Um, and then realizing that we both had skill gaps where we needed to get other people to come in and help us for short periods of time and, and seeing what that looked like in terms of managing our own freelancers and in, in certain capacities throughout the process. And so um, towards the, the the halfway point of our journey, we signed on with Barrett Kohler Publishers, um, an amazing publishing house based out of San Francisco. And the book finally launched on February 7th, 2023, um, starting from a dream back in 2020. So it's been it's been a really cool experience. And I think what's really cool about it is that like Tam and I hadn't met in person the whole entire time you wrote the book. It wasn't until our first draft was submitted to the publishing house that finally I went to visit her um, in the, her hometown in the United States. So the whole entire book on remote work was written while we were two time zones apart and hadn't seen each other in person since 2019. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Huh? To me, you know, that's fairly normal, but you know, just 10 years ago, that's completely, completely inconceivable, isn't it? You know, and like 50 years ago, it would just have been madness. But, and, you know, to the Gen Z millennials of today, it's actually, they would just sort of see that as being quite normal. I suppose it's, it's amazing how, um, like society is kind of evolving. And I, I do sort of think, you know, with this whole move towards remote and asynchronous and digital interfaces and stuff, I just wonder what the companies of the future are going to be like when the Gen Z are the sort of, you know, 40, 50 year olds that are starting companies being hiring managers. It's going to be a completely new um sort of realm, isn't it, of how people interact with each other and how organizations perform. Yeah, we can't even imagine the new technologies that are going to exist for them. But I will say, I think there's core human traits that are never going to go away in business. And as we look towards the future of work, not leaving those human behaviors behind is going to be the most critical skill set for people to succeed in the future. So things like learning how to 
be authentic and show yourself virtually, learning how to communicate and solve conflict and tension and disagreements um, in a healthy way and not shying away from that conflict because conflict can be really productive for people and for companies, how to listen with empathy. I think all of these, this is my HR side of me talking, but I think all of those basic human skills, cross-cultural knowledge and just being able to have awkward conversations with people and learn from each other and build a better relationship. All of those things are going to be what sets leaders apart in the next two years or 20 years. You and I are probably now fully formed in terms of our, you know, capacity, professional sort of capacities and, and I suppose personality to a degree. What do you feel about a 19-year-old maybe that isn't necessarily fully formed and they're entering the workforce and it's a fully remote environment, yet they sort of need that formation stage? And what, you know, how is it going to be for them? Because back in the day, you would go to the office, work sucked, but you were sort of, you know, molded into the frame of what you were sort of projecting to be 10 to 20 years from now. Um, I don't know if that's all terribly traditionalist, but how do you feel the young kids of today will sort of um, emulate the workplace of uh, that they're in? Yeah, actually, this is so weird. It's like one of the first times in my life I'm starting to realize how old I am. And I'm like, wait, I need more younger professionals in my personal network so I can ask them questions about their life instead of just making assumptions. But I will say (laughs) that (laughs) if you're out there and you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'd love to learn from you. Um, (laughs) I don't have a TikTok. Maybe that's my problem. Um, But I, I will say for younger professionals and I think this is a shift for companies in general. You now have more people than ever to to learn from and to model these behaviors. So at work in a virtual workplace, you're going to learn the behavioral norms of what needs to happen for your company. And so ask questions around explicit expectations. If you're confused about something, make sure that you get clarity and be proactive in that way. Also, don't assume that you have to work from home and work alone because you're a remote worker. So I would seek out friends, ideally multi-generational friends, but even friends that are also starting out at different companies that, that are going through the same struggles as you and work with them in person and see how do they approach their work? How are you approaching your work? What can you learn from them and what can they learn from you and, and share those lessons learned at different companies and then teach yourself how to improve upon things like productivity, how to keep yourself focused, how to communicate, and then bring back those examples to your company. And that's the cross-pollination I was talking about when you work with coworkers that aren't employed by the same company. So I think we'll see a lot of parallel working Um, people working with their friends, similar to in university, where you might study for two totally different courses at the library with a friend and hold each other accountable um, for how many chapters you're going to get through in a study session. And I think we'll start seeing that. And leverage experts outside of your company for support. So finding mentorship um, from people you admire, following people on LinkedIn, TikTok, wherever, where you can learn from and grow your expertise in an in, in organic way. 
Yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? And, you know, I think for those that are like highly motivated, highly effective, all of that is easy and makes sense. Whereas those that just sort of aren't the highest performance, they kind of need to be kind of, I don't know, like sent away for a while and, and kind of molded and not have to sort of proactively do too much themselves. And I do maybe worry for those that might drop off the back of the wagon if there isn't that formative molding. Um, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, since COVID, we've been thrown into this kind of longitudinal study, well, longitudinal experiment, and we don't really know the social implications of something that is, you know, 20 years down the track. It's going to be fascinating to to watch. I guess only time will tell. But I will say for, for the people getting left behind i think the onus is not necessarily always on them but also on companies to get and and this is the skill set for managers of the future like do you actually know how to hold people accountable do you actually know how to give feedback and create structure without physically being able to see someone so whereas before those maybe like B-list performers, for a lack of a, a better word, um, would come into the office and the managers would note, like, are they getting there on time? Are they leaving on time? Do they seem to be working because they're sitting at their desk? But those weren't real qualifiers. And then they would wait for something like an annual performance review to give feedback to that person to tell them that they need to do better. Whereas I think the work of the future, there'll be a continuous feedback cycle and managers also need to take more responsibility in defining what outputs they're looking for, what the definition of done is, when a deliverable is expected by and communicate that clearly, especially to a junior level worker that's learning the ropes for the first time and not be afraid to follow up and tell them you miss this deadline. You're missing the deadline 80% of the time. Like we need to have a serious conversation about it. Um, I think a lot of managers and a lot of businesses are still scared to to go there. Matt Mullenweg of Automatic, he has these like five stages of, of remote work or something, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, the five I'm, stages I'm of autonomy. That's it, yeah. And he, he, he sort of isn't so keen on hybrid work because he says that the, the ones in office will be favored and they can get promotions more. And then he says the ultimate type of remote work is asynchronous work. Do you do you believe in that? Is there this kind of hierarchy or do you think that actually organizations can, you know, shape and mold things to to the needs of their staff and, and the, the company? So this is something that my personal opinion has changed while writing the book and, and especially in the past three months. So I'm a strong believer that similar to Matt, that asynchronous work and having as much autonomy as possible will lead to a high performing organization. For me, there's no question about that. Having asynchronous work allows people to schedule their workday in a way where they can have heads down time and not be distracted by communication. They can be really thoughtful about their answer and intentional about how they reply, which can limit miscommunication, which can decrease con like conflict in the back and forth. To me, there's no question that that is going to be a great organization. Where I have started to become more open-minded, and, and this is because I define hybrid differently than the rest of the world is that there are going to be ways where companies are going to have to put their unique footprint on their version of remote. 
So I think remote work skill set, um, like being able to communicate asynchronously, like making sure that all information, data, and knowledge is shared in a centralized location in the cloud on, on a software um, is going to be important for the company's success, how people spend their in-person time um, and socialize and build relationships with coworkers. I think that's up to each company to decide. So if you want to call that hybrid because a company's renting an office building and using that office building for monthly retreats or brainstorming lunches or things of that nature, like, sure, um, I'm happy with companies to do that as long as they're very intentional about what the purpose of those in-person times are, why they're doing it, and that they put in the the effort to educate themselves on things like subconscious bias so that you're not having proximity bias where people that are coming to those events more often are seen as better workers than the counterparts that are choosing to work remotely. And so I think that a lot of psychology is going to start influencing workplace decisions and people are going to have to be more knowledgeable about certain triggers and biases and and things that can lead to an unfair work environment. If you have a fully remote environment and you have no office location and you're asynchronous, and also I've seen people sort of shun the idea of meetings, you know, and then you're kind of like, well, what are you left with? <laughs> like, and actually, you know, people see it as kind of a freedom and autonomy, but actually you could, you, you're almost stripping down the function of the employee to just get your work done, you know, and there's a risk that the employee is actually reduced down to, you know, sort of bits and bytes on a computer screen. Um, d- does that make sense? And I, I, and what are your thoughts in terms of how you instill culture when your sort of only sort of form of connection is through a Slack channel? Do you, do you see that as, as sort of a, a hard problem or it's actually not a big issue? I think it depends. I think it depends on what type of employees you as a company are trying to attract. And also, how are you keeping those employees feeling connected and engaged through asynchronous channels? And so a couple of points to mention there is one, for me, the definition of culture is standard operating behaviors. What are the behavioral norms that are going to be rewarded internally so that you have consistency in how people act? And that, for me, can be done in a 100% virtual setting, even without things like real-time meetings. Um, It could be a cultural norm that you still want to create empathy and have a human connection, but you're so global that time zones and scheduling is impossible. And so you send little videos to each other and people watch the videos on their own time and respond back, Um, similar to a friend that you might have who, who lives multiple time zones away from you and you can never really figure out how to connect with them and have that FaceTime call. Um, There could be Slack channels where a standard operating behavior is sharing pictures of what you eat for lunch or, or how you're setting up your desk setup. And so you get to invite people into your home and that creates a sense of vulnerability and shared connection. There's also connection to the company's mission itself. But I will say that either extreme Um, is likely not ideal. I think when it comes to getting the work done itself, asynchronous is the best way to go. But the most successful companies, automatic included, that I've seen that have been fully distributed has invested time and money and resources in team meetups and retreats. And so spending time together in person um, 
at least once a year to build that sense of trust and that personal connection and things of that nature. It's all changing, isn't it? It's, it's a brave new world out there. And <laughs> Ali, we focus on outsourcing specifically or offshoring. And, you know, that is kind of leveraging the cheaper costs of living and cheaper salaries across different countries of the world. Um, and that as well has had a massive boost as a result of COVID and the move towards remote. It just seems that more businesses are aware of remote. Um, there's the argument then that if someone's in New York and they're paying their New York staff to work remotely sitting on a beach from wherever, why is the New York business going to continue to pay New York rates? And would they not then just look to hire people in the Philippines or India? Um, you know, do you again see that as an opportunity? You're no doubt, you know, highly well traveled and exposed to sort of the machinations of the world. To me, I see it as a fantastic thing as having one single global workforce um, as opposed to sort of people bound by these borders. But how do you see that impacting the job opportunities of people if employers pick up on this remote thing and realize actually they can hire all of their staff offshore in the Philippines? Yeah, I think this is um, a great question. I strongly believe in the future of a global talent pool and the global talent pool being as competitive as anyone who enters it, regardless of if they were born in the Philippines or if they were born in New York or if they live in Estonia or if they live in Colombia. Um, there's probably a lot of economic implications that I am not aware of as I make that bold of a statement. But again, is it a company's job to manipulate those triggers? Or is that something that we need to rethink in a societal way of what is a global economy going to look like in the future? So I think that in the future, we're going to start seeing location agnostic pay, because you're providing a value to a company, and that company is going to make money off of the value that you're providing. And so to cut costs simply by lowering the price point that you were willing to give at some point because you're hiring someone from overseas, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. So I think where outsourcing used to have a negative stigma, it used to be like, we're going to go to these lower cost regions and, and have these like factory jobs, for example, I see outsourcing as a huge opportunity now for the knowledge workers in any country around the world to them themselves be more competitive in the marketplace and to increase their own standards of living because they're just helping these companies provide a value and get an end result that they were willing to pay for at the beginning. And, and I have a very specific viewpoint on this because, um, my former employer, DuckDuckGo, this is a company I hugely admire, has a really transparent pay policy before it became the norm to have transparent pay policies in the US and they were location agnostic of their pay. And I just saw how incredible it was to not have that awkward, conflicting, negotiating conversation of salary to begin with. A software engineer deserves X amount of money. Who cares where that software engineer is coming from? And, and so today, I hope that outsourcing roles, freelance, gig work, consulting um, will just mean that there is a global talent pool where people can find great opportunities and great jobs wherever and that it's a mutually beneficial match. 
Yeah, it's it's. I'm really excited about the prospect. I see it can be awkward though, as the world sort of figures out how to run it. Um, I learned that Emirates, the airline which is based in Dubai, they have all of the um, flight crew sourced from all over the world, and it's you know whether they're from the US or whatever country, and then they are paid respective of the typical salary in their country, yet. They all live in Dubai together. So you can have some people doing, you know, an identical job. Some of them are from the US, some of them are from Eastern Europe, some of them are from Africa, and they are on completely different salaries because of where they originated. And it's um, kind of awkward, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, but, but this is what I think the world is going to sort of bumble through. And, you know, it, it's nice that you see it the same. I, I really see this... Um, inevitability about having a single global workforce eventually and it's companies like automatic and then DuckDuckGo that realize this and are pushing this forward but it's it's going to be kind of interesting to see it all wash out yeah and i would say for companies that are concerned about their cost there's always going to be workers that are highly motivated and more junior and if they're are certain people outside of your budget you can seek elsewhere and it's not it shouldn't be about where they happen to be born where their passports from or where they're currently living um in the project of us writing the book we were really on um, a bootstrapped budget um because we had both um, ultimately left our full-time jobs to work on this passion project of the book and build a business at the same time. And we worked with freelancers, someone to edit um, promotional videos for us. And it was someone who was kind of starting out themselves and we we're kind of starting out. And, you know, there's, there's other ways to, to have trade that feels fair. Um, that's not just taking advantage of situations, especially when, I think there's going to be a responsibility for freelancers of the future to do their market research and set their own prices. And if they're not getting clients because their price is too high to lower it, if they're getting clients too easily, it's a signal that they're pricing themselves too low and they should hire it. And I've navigated that myself as a freelancer and a consultant when I've set out proposals for, for my services and have seen like, oh, this person said no automatically, like maybe I, I really overshot or oh, I thought we were going to negotiate and they just said yes. And now I'm left feeling a certain negative emotion. Like I definitely could have valued my my knowledge a lot more and been more competitive in the workspace. Um, and those are decisions that I've learned to make as a consultant. And I think more freelancers are going to have to make those decisions themselves. Yeah, it's not easy, is it? None of it is easy. No, it's not easy at all. <laughs> Yeah, because you're always, you know, and this is a funny thing, like you're always going to be competing against every other person that also wants that job and they have different, you know, maybe obligations and costs and things like that. Um, so it's it's always a highly complex competitive environment. But what I like about it is, you know, I think the work, you know, when we have this sort of uh, remote work of the future, it's going to be based on the capability and the competence and the cost of those people, as opposed to where they sit or where they were born, you know, and, um, you know, up until today, really, a lot of job opportunity is based on the country that you were born in or the city that you're based in. And, and I think it's going to move significantly towards uh, a competency and meritocracy based employment, which will be fascinating to watch. Yeah? yeah, I can't wait to see how everything unfolds. 
Ali, so thank you so much and congratulations on releasing this book. Uh, it is a momentous uh, thing. It's, it's, it's great that you've, you've done it. Uh, it was uh, released on February the 7th, wasn't it? 2023? February 7th, 2023, available globally, uh, currently only in English, but hopefully that will be changing in the future as we reach more audiences. Um, so it's very exciting times, yeah. Congratulations. So I have not read it yet, but I have downloaded it now and I'm about to listen to the audio as we as we get off this podcast. So uh, thank you so much and I will leave a review. Uh, Ali, of course, if anyone wants to, to know more about the book, which is Remote Works or get in contact with you and also what, what else do you do? Do you have um, remote consulting or what is the, the sort of associated business? Yes, yeah, so people can get in touch with me and my co-author Tamara. Together we do uh, multiple workshops on remote work skill sets, such as how to get better at asynchronous communication or, or how to set those team norms on a, a virtually distributed team. And our services and information on where to buy Remote Works book is on our website, remoteworksbook.com. So pretty easy to remember. And if people are interested in just learning more about me or following along my uh, random thoughts on LinkedIn about the future of work, um, I'm happy to connect with people there. And you can just find me, Allie Green, with an E at the end of green. That was Allie Green. She is the co-author of Remote Works and a Remote Work Leader. As always, if you're on any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to email us, just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.